Today I invite you to draw your sword, turn to the gospel according to Luke as we continue our eight-part sermon series entitled Storytime, The Parables of Jesus. Today I want to read in your hearing Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 16, I'll begin reading at verse 19. Please hear the words of Jesus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony there. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And this morning we pray that the word of God will not only be found on the lips of this preacher, but may the word of God also be found on the ears of these listeners. And will you help us not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers also. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. This parable is a comparison and contrast of two men. By now you know that a parable is a fictional story that's thrown alongside real life. It's an earthly story with an eternal truth. Jesus said there was a rich man. We don't know how this man came to his riches. We don't know how he made his fortune. But we do know that he lived in a lap of luxury. To say that he wore clothing that was dipped in purple dye is not to say that 
necessarily his favorite color was purple. Not necessarily does it mean that his favorite McDonald's character was Grimace. Doesn't precisely mean that his favorite football team were the Minnesota Vikings. To say that this man wore clothing that was dipped in purple dye is to say this man flaunted his wealth with his wardrobe. This man was dressed to the nines. Normally, clothing that was dipped in purple dye was very expensive. It was reserved only for royalty and the social elite. Jesus said this man not only wore purple clothing, but he also had linen garments. That means that even his undergarments were made out of linen. So this man's fruit of the looms were high dollar. Everything about this man's wardrobe, he communicated his wealth, his extravagance. This man lived in a large house. He drove a spacious SUV chariot. He ate the choices of food. When Jesus said that he had a gate, what he's communicating is that this man lives in his own personalized gated community. And the word Jesus uses for gate is a word that normally describes a large gate at the entrance to a city or the entrance to a temple. So this rich man built a rich kingdom with all of his riches. It's at this point that Jesus introduces us to the second character in the story. This man was poor. He was so poor that he had to resort to begging. And he was brought to the gate of the rich man. To say that he was brought to the gate probably means that he was a crippled man. And because he was a crippled man, his only way of making ends meet was just to beg based on the generosity of other people. So he went to the wealthiest neighborhood. He went to the wealthiest house in that wealthy neighborhood. He went right outside the rich man's house. And I suppose that for this poor man, hunger was his only companion. He longed to eat the food that were just the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. This crippled beggar was ill. He was so sick that he had sores all over his body, from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And this man didn't even have the strength to shoo away stray dogs who would come and lick his sores. This was a pathetic sight. Ironically, Jesus gives the poor man a name in his story. He names him Lazarus. This is important because out of all the parables Jesus told, this is the only time when any character of that story is named. Stop and think about it. You don't know the names of any other characters in any other parable of Jesus. You don't know the name of the prodigal son. You don't know the name of the older brother. You don't know the name of the father, do you? You don't know the name of that widow who was so persistent that she pestered the stew out of that unjust judge. You also don't know the name of the unjust judge, do you? You don't know the name of anybody except this poor man named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was a popular name. Aaron had a son named Lazarus. Also, Abraham had a servant named Lazarus. But the most popular Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. 
And before you begin to connect the dots and think to yourself, well, this must be the same individual, that the, that the Lazarus of John chapter 11 must be the same Lazarus in Jesus' story of Luke chapter 16. Let me just remind you that the sibling of Mary and Martha, he was not poor, nor was he crippled. So I think that Jesus is just calling on a popular name. I think he names the poor man Lazarus in his story on purpose, though. Do you know what the name Lazarus means? It means helped by God. What Jesus is saying is that this poor man was not helped by the rich man, but he was helped by God. Friend, there may be individuals that let you down, but if you are a child of the king, you are helped by God. There may be people that put you between a rock and a hard place and then walk away from you. But Jesus will be one who will help you. There may be some individuals who will stab you in the back. There may be some people that will disappoint you. There may be some individuals that will not be there when you need them the most. But if you are a child of the king, then you too are a Lazarus. For you are helped by God. One of the great promises of the Bible is that God says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you, I will always accompany you. So this name Lazarus means helped by God. I think that Jesus names this poor man Lazarus on purpose. He wants us to know that this comparison and contrast is that this poor man is not helped by the rich man, but he is helped by God. I think there's another reason why Jesus names this poor man in the story is because this is not the last time, but this is the first time in this story where Jesus will flip the script. People of every culture know the names of the rich and the famous, but people of every culture don't give the time of day to poor people because poor people are a dime a dozen. But we know the names of the rich and famous. We know where they live. We've seen pictures of their houses. We see the fashionable clothing that they wear. We know the vehicles that they drive. We know the amount of money that they amass. We know the details of the rich and famous because we are enamored with that. In fact, many cultures idolize the rich and the famous. And Jesus is flipping the script. In his story, you could safely assume that everybody in that town knew the name of the rich man. The rich man that lived behind that massive gate in his own personalized gated community who had the large house and the spacious SUV that dressed in purple clothes and even had fine linen undergarments. I mean, everybody knew this man's name. Nobody would have known or cared the name of the poor man who was the beggar, who was brought every day, and plopped right outside the rich man's gate. But Jesus flips the script. He says that man is named Lazarus. Regardless of whether you're rich or poor, there is at least one inevitability of life. All of us are going to die. We can't avoid it. Now we try to avoid it, don't we? We exercise, you need to exercise. We try to eat right, you need to try to eat right. We try to take care of ourselves. You need to take care of yourself. Sometimes we go on diets, and maybe there's some of you that need to go on diets. But we try to take care of ourselves, right? I mean, we try to do the right thing. We try to stave off death as long as possible. 
but there's a 100% rate for death. Death comes calling for all of us. And Jesus says there's at least one inevitability of life. Both the poor man and the rich man died. When the poor man named Lazarus, when he died, I don't know that anybody knew it. I don't know that anybody really cared. I think the only people who mourned the death of Lazarus in this story were the stray dogs that would lick his open sores. If this man had a funeral, I doubt that, I, I doubt that anybody would have gone. There might have been a couple of people at the funeral, and one of them would have been the preacher. So it would not have been a well-attended funeral. Jesus says that when Lazarus died, he went to the side of Abraham. Now that imagery of the side of Abraham, that's synonymous with heaven. It's the place of blessing. It's the place of favor. It's that location where the righteous dwell. Jesus is saying that the poor man, when he died, that one named Lazarus, he went to heaven. He was at Abraham's side. We also read that the rich man died and he was buried. You bet your bottom dollar he was buried. I mean, he had a terrific funeral. His five brothers, they hired the best musicians and the best professional mourners that money could buy. And on that day for that funeral, it was a social event. Everybody in town was there. Everybody wanted to pay their last respects. Everybody wanted to see who's who in attendance at this man's funeral. When you walked in, the sweet aroma of flowers almost knocked you over because everybody gave some flowers. Everybody was there. Everybody wanted to be recognized as being there because this was a social event. The preacher stood up and the preacher took note that the man who's lying here is in a beautiful mahogany casket. That the lining of this casket is diamond studded. It tells us that here lies a great man. He's one of the best citizens this town has ever had in our illustrious history. After all, this man was a hard worker. This man was blessed by God. This man had amassed a fortune. And this man, he was generous, for he gave a large sum of money to the Together We Build program here at the Jewish synagogue, and he gave so much money to the Family Life Center that that building bears his name. We would all do well to model this man's work ethic. He was dedicated to his work. He was dedicated to his job. He came from nothing, and he made something of himself. All you young people who are here at the funeral today, you need to, you need to take good notes of this man's life. Your generation needs a good work ethic, and if your generation worked as hard as this man, our future would be bright. Here lies one of the greatest citizens that this city, this village has ever had in all of her history. And everybody clapped, stood in honor of this man. After the final amen was given, they took the body to the cemetery. They had the committal service, and then they went to the estate for the family meal. At this point in the story, Jesus pulls back that thin veil between the visible and the invisible. 
Jesus reminds us that this is not all there is. Death is not the end of the road. Death is a bend in the road. This death that all of us will face, death is not a wall that you hit. It's a door that you enter. And so Jesus, ever so brilliantly, just pulls back the veil, pulls back the curtain, so that what is normally invisible becomes visible. He says that the poor man named Lazarus, he's at the bosom of Abraham. He's at Abraham's side. He's in heaven. But the rich man, he's in torment. He's in agony. He's in hell. A great chasm has been fixed so that those in hell can't get to heaven. Those in heaven can't get to hell. Now keep in mind, this is a story. So in this story, Jesus says that a conversation ensues. The rich man has enough religion to know that's Father Abraham. He talks to Abraham, but he never talks directly to Lazarus. He talks indirectly to Lazarus. But he has enough religion. He went to church frequently enough to know that that right there, that's Father Abraham. And, and that's Lazarus. That's the beggar that was outside my gate every day. And, and he's in heaven. He's at Abraham's side. So the rich man says, Father Abraham, I want you to command Lazarus to go dip his finger in cool water and touch my tongue because I'm parched. I am thirsty. I am dying here in this fire, in this place of agony. Now the rich man believed that even in death, Lazarus was just nothing more than a commodity at his beck and call. The only reason Lazarus exists, the only reason Lazarus would be at Abraham's side was to do my bidding. That's what the rich man thinks. So he doesn't have enough respect to talk to Lazarus. He just talks to Abraham and says, Abraham, send Lazarus to cool my tongue. I am dying here. I am in agony. And Abraham engages the rich man in conversation. Son, remember that in your life, while on earth, you received good things. And Lazarus, while on earth, received bad things. But now in death, he's comforted here. And you are in agony there. I don't know about you, but that verse makes me nervous. That verse makes me uncomfortable. Doesn't it make you uncomfortable? I mean, at first read, it sounds like that what Abraham is saying is that Lazarus is in heaven because he was poor on earth. And rich man, you're in hell because you were rich on earth. Once again, it seems like a flipping of the script. And it, at first read, it sounds like that the way somebody gets to heaven is to be poor. And the way somebody goes to hell is to be rich. And I don't know about you, but that alarms me. That concerns me. Because if that's true, how poor do you have to be to go to heaven? 
I need to know that, right? I mean, if that's the entrance of getting into heaven, how poor do you have to be? Is it a comparison between my bank account and your bank account? Is it a comparison between my bank account and a politician's bank account? Is it a comparison between your bank account and a professional athlete's bank account? I mean, how poor do you have to be? If it's a global comparison, then all of us are in trouble because the poorest of Americans are, some, are still in the upper echelon in all of the world when it comes to annual income. So how poor do you have to be in order to get to heaven? And if that's true, I also want to know the flip side. How rich do you have to be to go to hell? Because just being honest with you, I want to know what that threshold is, and I want $1 less, don't you? I mean, if there's a threshold, this is how rich you're being. And if you get this or beyond, you're going to hell. Just give me $1 under that. This is also problematic because nowhere else in Scripture does it seem to teach that entrance into heaven is based upon the socioeconomic status of your life while on earth. No. In the previous chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that it's repentance, not riches, that gets you into heaven. For Jesus says there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. In John chapter 14, Jesus seems to say that it's relationship, not riches, that gets you into heaven. For Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That the way you get to the Father is through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you go to a place like Matthew 25, and Jesus, while he's telling the story of how he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, he says that it's righteousness, not riches, that gets you into eternal life. Because the wicked will go away into torment, but the righteous will go away into eternal life. So elsewhere, Jesus has said that it's repentance, not riches. It's a personal relationship, not riches. It is righteousness that's been imputed upon you and practiced by you. It's that righteousness that gets you into heaven, not riches. Nowhere else in Scripture would it even insinuate that your entrance into kingdom has something to do with your money. So, what is Jesus teaching? What is Jesus telling us? It was John MacArthur who said that every parable is a salvation story. That every parable is a portrait of redemption. So if MacArthur's right, then what is Jesus teaching us about salvation from this story? I think it's important for us to know the context. Just a few verses that precede uh, Luke 16, verse 19, which is where I started reading. We are told that as Jesus is preaching and teaching in parables, that the Pharisees are there. The Pharisees are in the crowd. The Pharisees are hanging on every word. The Pharisees were the religious elite in the days of Jesus. They were regarded as the pure ones. They were the ones that wanted to preserve the obedience to and the understanding of the law of God. Pharisees get a bad rap, and a lot of times it's warranted, because they 
thought of themselves as a cut above. Jesus says to those Pharisees in the verses that lead up to our passage, Jesus said, a servant cannot serve two masters who either love the one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He went on to say to the Pharisees, what you highly value among men is detestable in the sight of God. That's the backdrop of our story. In our story, the rich man represents everything that would have been valued by the Pharisees. They would have seen in him a holy pedigree because they would have assumed this rich man was connected to Abraham, that he had a line and lineage. He had the right pedigree. He had the right upbringing. He was raised in a Jewish home. Also, this man in Jesus' story was wealthy, extravagantly wealthy. And from the perspective of the Pharisees, wealth was a sure sign of God's blessing. If you were wealthy, then obviously you were blessed by God. Now friends, some of that mentality even seeps into our day. For if you see somebody and they live in a nice house, and they drive a nice car, they have a good job, they wear nice clothes, what do you say of that person? You say, she is blessed. He is blessed. And we almost equate blessing with financial resources. That if somebody has enough finances, then obviously they are blessed, blessed of God. But I want to tell you that you show me somebody who has nothing in the bank account but they have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, that individual is blessed beyond measure. It's a great place for a hearty amen, and you just missed it, all right? I mean, if you have Jesus Christ, you have the crown jewel of heaven. You have the treasury of heaven in you, at your disposal. So that person who belongs to Jesus Christ, that person is blessed. Yet even in our culture, in our society, we think that if a person has enough stuff, then they've been blessed by the Savior. And so that idea was from the Pharisees. So they would have said that the rich man he personified everything that we value. He had religious pedigree that took him back to Abraham. Uh, he had worldly wealth. Also, Lazarus, the poor man, he represents everything the Pharisees despised. He was poor. He was destitute. He was sick. From the perspective of the Pharisees, clearly they would say God's favor was not resting upon him. He had sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He was diseased. He was ill. He had no money. He was crippled. He was marginalized. He was shoved away. He was pushed away. Obviously, the Pharisees would say, he is not one who is valued by God. And once again, Jesus flips the script. Because he says that Lazarus, the poor man, he's the one in heaven. The rich man? He's in torment, in agony, in hell. But still, though, how did Lazarus get to heaven? In Jesus' story, how did he get there? Is it simply because 
He had no money in his bank account? Is it because he was financially poor? And I want to clearly tell you, and I want you to hear me resoundingly, that Lazarus is at Abraham's side. Lazarus is saved, not because he's financially poor, but because he was spiritually poor. And he understood that. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When it comes to salvation, you are a poor spiritual wreck. When it comes to your salvation, you are a spiritual beggar. It is like Lazarus. You come to God and you're on bended knee with head down cast. Your arm is outstretched. Your palm is open heavenward. And you just simply say, Lord, I've got nothing in my hand. There's nothing I can do to be saved. I am spiritually destitute. I am spiritually bankrupt. I am spiritually poor. And the only way I get to heaven is because of you. I can't lift my hand or foot unto salvation. Just like the thieves on the cross, I can't do anything to earn or to merit or deserve my salvation. The only thing I bring to salvation is my wretched sinfulness. I've got nothing worthy in my hand. And so, Lord, if you save me, it's because of your kindness and your grace, because I am spiritually bankrupt. Lazarus is in heaven, not because he's financially bankrupt, but because he's spiritually bankrupt. It has to be at some point in the story that Jesus doesn't tell us all the details because he never told us all the details of a parable. But at some point in the background of this story, Lazarus came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he trusted Jesus to supply him and to remove his bankruptcy so that he had the crown jewel of heaven in his life. If that's true, the flip side must also be true. The rich man is in hell not because of his worldly riches. It's because of his self-sufficiency. He was gripped by his own greed. His goods had become his gods. He was possessed by his possessions. He was more enamored with his stuff than he was enamored with the Savior. And the rich man's in hell Because he was trusting himself and his riches and his pedigree to earn his own salvation. He thought that by his own doing, he was rich towards God. But the reality was, he was simply trusting himself. And that's why that man's in hell. Now, while he's in hell, experiencing this agony and torment of the fire, at least he's not completely selfish, is he? He said to Father Abraham, will you please send Lazarus to my brothers? Because I don't want them to have to experience what I'm experiencing. And they're on the same track as me. They're on the same path that I'm on. Now, you might expect Father Abraham to say, well, at least now he's a little bit selfless. He's not completely consumed with his own selfishness, so maybe I'll just send Lazarus. No, no. In this story, Father Abraham just simply said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. Friends, Jesus never unhitched himself from the scriptures. Jesus never unhitched himself from the scriptures. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. 
Jesus came to fulfill it at every point. So in this story found on the lips of Jesus, Jesus spins this story and simply says from the mouth of Abraham, look, your brothers, rich guy, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Because Moses and the prophets were consumed with Christ. Moses and the prophets talked about the coming of Jesus. Moses and the prophets, they gave a glimpse into the future of the Messiah who was to come. And that Messiah is the long-awaited Jesus. For what did Moses write? In Deuteronomy he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Leviticus he writes, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus picked up on both those commands and said all the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. Those commands to love God perfectly and love your neighbor passionately, that's a summation of all the law and all the prophets. It is Samuel who said to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed is better than the fat of rams. It's Micah who says what does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. All of this points us to the necessity of the Messiah. We need Jesus because we can't do these things in and of ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't do enough good. We can't earn our salvation. Our love for God is scarce. Our love for neighbor is inconsistent. We disappoint the Lord and we disappoint people on a regular basis. We need somebody to come and help us. We need for the Messiah to live in and through us. So all of what Moses wrote and all the prophets They all were communicating, hey, you can't do this on your own. You've got to have King Jesus. So Jesus in this story says, let your brothers listen to Moses and the prophets. He has one final plea. The rich man says, Abraham, please, if if Lazarus goes back from the dead, If my brothers see someone who's been raised from the dead, they will repent. Isn't it interesting that it's at this moment, even though it's too late, it's at this moment that the rich man now understands the way you get to heaven is repentance. It's not about riches. It's repentance. Repentance is the only route to reconciliation in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Repentance is the only route of reconciliation in the kingdom of God. The only way anybody gets into heaven is through repentance. Repentance means the changing of the mind, but it's also the changing of behavior. For if you change your belief, you'll change your behavior. It's walking towards the culture. It's being consumed by the culture. It's doing an about face by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you move from the culture, and then you start walking towards Christ. Repentance. This man says, if my brothers repent, then they won't land themselves here. Now, what do they need to repent from? I mean, from our story, we're not given any indication that these guys are terrible wretches, right? I mean, we're not given any indication that the five brothers threw frat parties on Friday night. We're not given any indication that these five brothers had some heinous, immoral lifestyle. We're not given any indication that these guys, we assume that they're rich just like their brother and they got their riches from some ill-gotten gain. We don't assume any of that from the story. So what do they need to repent from? 
They need to repent from the same thing that their big brother needed to repent from. Self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness. Which was demonstrated through greed. These guys needed to repent from the greed of their life. Because they thought they could save themselves. They thought they could be their own gods. They thought it would be okay because they did more good than bad. It would tip the scale in their favor. As long as they could save themselves, they'd be all right. And the rich man says, listen, they need to repent from that. They need to repent from the greed that has consumed them. The opposite of greed is generosity. It was Chris Willard who wrote that generosity takes place when the great commandment and the great commission collide. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The great commission, as you go, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. For surely I'm with you always to the very end of the earth. You show me somebody who understands and is overwhelmed and is consumed by the great commandment and the great commission, and I'll show you somebody who's generous. Generous with their money, generous with their life, generous with their resources, generous with their time, generous with everything they have, for they want to leverage everything in life for the Lord. How you handle your worldly wealth does reveal something significant about your spiritual health. How you handle your worldly wealth, it does reveal something significant about your spiritual health. Because the person who is generous, the person who battles greed, the person who says, I am am caught between that divine vortex of that collision between the great commandment and the great commission, that person says, I wanna leverage everything to the Lord and everything under my control, I wanna give under God's control. So the rich man says to Abraham, please, Please send Lazarus. If somebody rises from the dead, my brothers will acknowledge it, they'll believe, and they'll repent. Father Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses, if your brothers don't listen to the prophets, they won't listen even if somebody rises from the dead. Throughout Jesus' ministry, the Jews wanted a sign. Give us a sign and we'll believe. Give us a sign. And we'll follow you. And from this story, Jesus is saying, you have enough signs. All you have to do is look at Moses and the prophets. All you have to do is read the Bible that you have, which we call the Old Testament. All you have to do is read the sacred scripture. Because Jesus says, I'm never going to unhitch myself from the scripture. So you see the scripture. You see the signs. You see what God has done for you. And you will believe. So what all has God done for you? What all has he done for his people? It is God who spared Noah and his family from the worldwide flood. It is God who brought Joseph out of the pit and placed him into the palace. It is God who delivered the Israelite children from their Egyptian captivity when they found themselves between a rock and a hard place with Pharaoh and his army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. And it is God who rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It is God 
who cooled down the furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And actually the Savior got into the fiery furnace and danced with those old boys. It is God who shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. It is God who preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish. It is God who raised an army out of a valley of dry bones. It is God who gave David the victory over Goliath. It is God who gave Elijah the victory on Mount Carmel. It is God who's done the impossible. For God stepped out of heaven and stepped into the earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. It is God who was born in a Bethlehem barn in a rustic cave. It is God with flesh on who came and lived a perfect life. It is God who died on Calvary's hill. This God in Jesus, he was the one who fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. It is God who opened up the eyes of the blind man. It is God who unstopped deaf ears. It is God who said to the lame man, get up and walk. It is God who said to the other Lazarus, Lazarus come out and the dead man came hopping out of the grave. It is God who went outside the city gate as he was carrying a cross made of wood, went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, there at Calvary's hill, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He was dangling on a cross between two thieves. It is Jesus on that faithful Friday who took all the sin debt that you have because you can't pay your sin debt. And Jesus took it upon himself and eternity's worth of condemnation was squeezed upon Jesus. He is our substitute. James Montgomery Boyce simply said it like this, that Jesus endured my hell so I might enjoy his heaven. And Jesus declared, it is finished. Payment for your sin is made in full. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave. He stayed there on Friday. He stayed there all day Saturday. But early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up. The dead man began to breathe again. You're looking for a sign? You need to know what God has done for you? All you got to do is look to Calvary. And Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to the heavens. And one day, he's going to mount his white horse. One day, he's going to peel back the clouds. One day, he's going to come and rescue his church. You need a sign. All you got to do is open your Bible. You need a sign. All you got to do is look to the scripture because Jesus never unhitched himself from the Bible. You look at the page of the Bible and you see the Savior who's worth worshiping. You see a Savior who died for you. You see a Savior who rose for you. You see a Savior who's coming back for you. This is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So all to Jesus I surrender, and all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. This morning, do you need to surrender something to Jesus? Maybe you need to give him your heart. It is Jeremiah who said, the heart is a deceitful place. It's beyond all cure. It cannot be cured in this world. Only God, the great physician, in his operating room can give you a heart transplant. And maybe you need to surrender your heart to Christ. Maybe it's your stinking thinking. You need to surrender your mind to Christ. Maybe it's your tongue because the words that tumble from your mouth are rotten fruit. And you just need to surrender that unto Christ. Maybe it's your fears. Maybe it's your goals. Maybe it's your future. Maybe it's your stuff. All the stuff that you have. I think when I read this story, I think the rich man was an American. Because his life looks like our life. It's a life of ease and comfort, and we pursue that at any cost. And maybe today you just need to surrender 
all that you have. Maybe you're not a Christian and today you need to become one. We're going to sing a song. If you never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, as soon as we start singing the song, Man of Sorrows, I want you to come and grab the hand of one of the ministers here. Maybe you are a Christian, but you've got something that just nags you. You've got something that itches you. You've got something that's all over your mind, your heart, your spirit. You've got something that worries you. You've got something that consumes you. And you just need to surrender it unto him. You can pray at your seat, but maybe you just need to come and pray here at the altar. The altar's open for you. You surrender everything unto Christ. The point of this story is the point of surrender. Everything under your control, you surrender under God's control. I surrender it all, all to thee, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We do want to surrender all that we are to you, and perhaps for some it's salvation, for others it's relationship, for still others it's a problem at home or at work or at school. It's a prayer concern that keeps us up at night. Lord, whatever it may be, we surrender it unto you. Have your way in this invitation. We pray that you will draw people unto yourself. We pray the altar is full. We pray that prayers are offered in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.